Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast where your host, Ryan Tansom, brings you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. Welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. This is episode 70. Have you ever wondered what the perfect strategic sale looks like? Well, on today's episode, that's exactly what we're going to be talking about. You're going to hear step-by-step how Josh Elizechi perfected the sale of his company to one of his clients and partners. Josh started his company at the age of 15 and by 20 years old was managing around $100 million in marketing spend for some of the top companies in the US and the Fortune 500. After burning out and being 100 pounds overweight, Josh decided to sell his business, and within six months, he created a market and sold his company to one of his strategic partners. The wisdom and experience that Josh shares throughout his story is some of the best that's been on this show. So listen in to hear Josh's exit story, the things he learned along the way, and what he would do differently now, and how his life after business is a happy one filled with the things that he wants to do, running different companies, and making a difference in multiple multiple different industries. So without further ado, I really hope you enjoy this episode with Josh. This episode of Life After Business is brought to you by Solidity Financial's Growth and Exit Planning. Their proven process gives you clarity on all of your exit options and how those options impact your financial success, timing, and future happiness. Sell your company on your time frame to the right buyer at the price you want. Josh, how are you doing today? Hey, I am doing fantastic. I'm uh, excited to have you on the show. Uh, I saw you speak at the Rhodium Weekend where there's a bunch of digital entrepreneurs and you got up and you, you told your story and I knew that I couldn't wait to have you on the show because of how unique of a story it is, especially with your age and how wise I, uh, I thought you were with what you were saying up there. Um, so for our listeners who did not get to see the presentation, can you just take us back and Explain to us that at the early age when you decided to become an entrepreneur and how you took the leap. Well, I'll take you, um, I won't take you all the way back, but uh, I think a lot of entrepreneurs have similar tales of growing up and, you know, um, kind of looking in retrospect. Uh, it, it, it's apparent that I was uh, definitely leaning towards entrepreneurship, even though I didn't know it when I was uh, in high school. I was studying to go to medical school and being the youngest in my family and my brothers and sisters not going uh, through uh, college and graduating or being doctors and lawyers, all of that pressure um, kind of inherently fell on me. So I was kind of focused more on medical school, didn't think anything about entrepreneurship, didn't think anything about business. I knew I liked computers because I would uh, help my friends make music. I would uh, uh, work on stuff at the school computers. I knew I liked computers. Um, I like video games. So anyway, when I was in, in high school, freshman and sophomore year, I was spending a lot of time at the library and we didn't have a computer at home, so I was using the library's uh, computers to uh, learn how to make websites. I was reading um, uh, web design for dummies and similar books like that. And so I started to make started to make websites. Really, they were blogs. And this was about ten years ago, and so um, WordPress wasn't as popular as it is now. And so it was it was all of HTML, CSS, JavaScript, PHP. So I was learning a program. Because I, I was excited by the fact that I could create my own, my very own website for free. And it was almost like I was creating my own video game. And I like video games. I like computers. I had no idea that you could make money doing anything like that. I, I never thought it was really serious, more just a hobby. Till one day, I received an email on one of my blogs. And I was writing in, under pseudonyms because uh, I didn't want anyone to know some young teenager in Phoenix, Arizona writing about you know, various topics. I felt like I wouldn't, people wouldn't listen to me. And so uh, I got an email one day and it said, uh, we'd like to advertise on your blog for $400. So uh, I printed that out, showed it to my dad. My dad said, you know, that's, you know, that's a scam. Don't believe it. The internet's dangerous. I don't want you playing on the internet. Uh, of course, like any other teenager, I didn't listen, uh, which I'm glad <laughs> again in retrospect that I didn't listen. So uh, I went and I uh, convinced my dad to create a PayPal account and I used that PayPal account to request money from these guys. And they sent the 400 bucks. I printed that out, showed it to my dad. He said, there's numbers on the screen. It could all go away. Don't trust it. Again, didn't listen to him. And it was funny because 30 days later, I received another email that said, you have received $400. <laughs> I was like, oh, maybe they, you know, maybe they accidentally 
send it again? Or, you know, I didn't, I didn't know to refund them. Do I email? Like, what do I do? And so I guess I misunderstood. They meant $400 per month for a little banner ad on the blog I was writing about. The blog was about um, the very, very first iPhone and its release and all the features it would have. I was just obsessed with that phone. And uh, I wasn't sure I was going to be able to get one because it was seven or 800 bucks uh, or more than that. And, and so I was infatuated with the device. I was writing about it under my pseudonym on a, on a uh, random blog that I had created in Phoenix. And so here I am writing this blog. I learned how to put a little picture, a banner ad in the sidebar of the blog. And they were paying me $400 a month for that. And I was like, wow, 400 a month. That's crazy. <laughs> I could, I had, that, how long does this last? Like I'm already thinking in my head, I'm like, 410, whoa, 4,000, I could maybe buy a car. Like I'm over here thinking of all this stuff. Um, they ended up advertising for a long time with me. But what really clicked for me was the fact that I made something with, with, for free with my own two hands that was now um, making enough money to help out at home, to buy my own stuff, and to save up for a computer. And so if I could do it with one website, I thought I should be able to do this with, with dozens of them. So that's that's kind of where I, it, that epiphany kind of happened for me when I realized I learned how to program, I learned how to design, and I could make money. And then the whole Pandora's box of services, the services industry opened up to me, it serendipitously opened up to me because a teacher one day in high school asked me, um, you know, what are you reading? And I said, oh, it's uh, PHP programming for dummies. Like, oh, are you a programmer? You're a coder? And I was like, oh, I guess. I mean, you know, I make websites and that. She said, oh, well, a friend of mine needs a website done. How much do you charge? And so that's when Google became my best friend. And I searched, you know, how much do people charge to make a website? I was going to do it for free. I was like, I was yeah, say, how much make you charge? <laughs> I think I charged maybe 500. I don't know the exact amount. Maybe it's 500 bucks. Maybe it's up. I don't think I would have asked for a thousand. I think that would have been way too high at that point for me to even have the uh, bravery to, to say something like that. And I came back the next weekend after the next weekend and the website was done and uh my teacher's friend was so blown away because she had been quoted thousands of dollars for several months project and i finished it in a weekend um (laughs) and it was fully operational and so naturally i I always tell when i go and speak to students in schools and people that want to be entrepreneurs and say create create a massive amount of value and, and 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 price it underneath the market average and you'll naturally build word of mouth and you have to be willing to kind of bite the bullet. Obviously I didn't have any big expenses being a teenager that I could charge 500 bucks, get it done in a weekend. And that was, you know, pure profit margin for me because it was just me doing the work. So um, the word started to spread very quickly that there's this young kid who's really fast and really good at programming websites that he could whip you one up, you know, for a few hundred bucks in a weekend's time. And so naturally word of mouth just started to spread. And so I was, I was balancing uh, my high school with, uh, with my, my blogs and then with my service business. And the one, the one thing I had to keep up was I kept at word with my, with my dad. He said, you, if you keep up, my parents said, if you keep up your good grades, you can keep making websites, you can buy a computer, you can spend all day on the computer. And so uh, I ended up keeping that promise. And I graduated valedictorian from my high school. Uh, you know, Congratulations. With, with my clients. gosh. Thank you. And that was exciting for me just because it was, it was a challenge to say, okay, if I keep my grades up, how about if I keep them the highest and, you know, out of 500 plus students and I'll graduate number one and I'll be running my business. And I, I did have to end up dropping, you know, varsity football, track and field and a lot of sports. I still stayed in student government. So I was still involved, but I had to give, dedicate my weekends to what I didn't even know would become a huge business. I was just doing stuff because it made money. And I wanted money so I could help my family and buy my own things and buy my own car. That was really it. I think necessity is the mother of invention. I could say some philosophical thing that, you know, I just felt I was, you know, yearning to, to enter the world of entrepreneurship. It's like, no, I just want to make some money. Nobody wanted to hire me because I was 15 years old. You know, I was too young. And I liked making websites because I was doing it already for free and for fun. And then people wanted to pay me. And I'm like, uh, sure. So, you know, that's kind of what it started. That's how it actually started. Well, and you snowballed really fast. And I, and I think, you know, to give uh, the listeners a little bit of a, a, a peer into the, the, the company that you did create, you know, we'll kind of run us through some of the milestones uh, that you were tracking from, you know, 
ad spend that you're managing to employees to, cause I mean, you, you, you know, and, and the rapid growth behind it, if you kind of give give us a little bit of a peer into how fast and the, the, the girth of um, the company that you've built. Sure. I mean, the first, you know, three or four years, uh, as a student the other day, I, I run a, a nonprofit foundation for underserved high school students, uh, along with, um, several others, but, um, one of the, I speak a lot to students and one of the students asked me, you know, how did you get into passive income? And I was like, well, I said, I'm barely, I'm barely scratching the surfaces now of what you call quote unquote passive income. Everything to me is active because I'm very involved in everything I'm doing. But I said, first, you have to be willing to work for a dollar to $2 per hour with no one saying thank you, no one being appreciative of you, but you just putting your head down, getting better and better and better and willing to adapt and learn. And so I started off the first three or four years was really just me doing everything from <clears throat> deepening my voice on the phone so I sounded older to potential clients, <laughs> you know, saying yes to everything under the sun. You know, can you program this calendar so that it sends me an email so that it does this, this, this? I would say, sure. And I would go to Google, or I would go to the library and I figure out how to do that. And so I became really good at programming, I became really good at designing just out of the client's needs. And I knew that if I could fulfill that for them, they were going to pay me, they were going to be happy, and they were going to tell more people, which meant more money, which meant more clients. So I knew that I had to figure that out, and I had no one else to do it, so I had to figure it out. So if, uh, you know, the first year or four years were thankless uh, in terms of you know, sleepless, sleepless nights, you know, keeping up straight A's in school, student government, all of these things, um, in addition to my business, and not telling anyone about it because it was not hip or cool back then to be programming websites on the weekend instead of you know, drinking with your buddies, you know, underage drinking or all this, you know, crazy stuff that could go on, especially in the area that I grew up in, um, the very hostile environment, drugs, alcohol. So when people say, oh, you should, you know, Josh, you're on the football team, you're on the track team, you're in student government, you're popular, you should be at all these parties. And I used to come up with just random excuses to get out of it so I could go home and make websites because I knew what I was working towards. I knew if I didn't give up, you know, I don't care if anyone believes in me or not, but this is, I just feel, it feels right. And so I just kept doing it and I started to increase my prices over time as I learned about supply and demand. Uh, and that was, that was really just a coincidence because I had a client say, you know, could you get it done in, in two or three weeks? You know, we have this big launch. I said, I don't think so because I got two or three clients that I'm working on right now. They said, well, what if we paid you a lot more so you could prioritize the project? And I said, well, absolutely. We could figure that out. So I started to learn about supply and demand and how to, how to manage that. And then, of course, you know, going to business school after high school, I learned about the, the theoretical side of it and the strategies. And, you know, I've been reading since I was 13 or 14 years old. I've been reading, you know, one or two books a week, cover to cover, not just skimming. I read the entire thing. And most of it is about business concepts, competition, you know, autobiographies. But anyway, to answer your question, it went for three years. It was just first it was I want to make it save enough money to buy my own computer and split the internet costs with my dad so I could have internet home and not be chained to the library anymore. Um, once I did that, I could work for eight hours after school. So my productivity tripled. Then the next goal was I need to save up to buy a car because I don't think my parents will have the money to buy me one and I'm tired of taking the bus. So if I have my own car, that would save me an extra hour in the morning, hour and a half that I could be making another website versus waiting for the bus. So, and then it was, then it was like, okay, now I need a laptop because I need to be able to make websites while I'm at school in between classes and between breaks. I need to be doing that. So then it was like, I need to save up enough money to do that. And so just little by little by little started to um, grow and grow to the point where, you know, I was, I was making you know, more money than, than any of the teachers I knew, but I wasn't thinking of it that way. I wasn't like, you know, I'm making all this money. For me, it was nice. I got a lot of stuff now. Nice. I have enough money to help my family out now. Nice. I can, you know, buy myself my own school supplies this year. You know, that was, that was an exciting moment for me when I told my parents like, Hey, I got it this year. I'm going to buy my own backpack. I'm going to buy my own stuff. You don't have to give me any money. And I'm going to buy my own car, my own insurance. That to me was way more gratifying than just going around and saying, I make more money than you. I make this. That was never a goal of mine. It was really just independence, mm -hmm. uh, financial independence. And so from then when I graduated high school, I went to Arizona State University at the Honors College and the Business School, and I studied computer information systems there, which is the, the mix between business and computers. I knew that was a good match for me. I read somewhere online that says, 
you know, just go for something you're interested in because if you don't, you're more likely to drop out. And none of my brothers and sisters had their college degree. So I was like, I have to do this. So I ended up graduating in two years. I was um, just turned 20 years old when I finished uh, my bachelor's degree and I came in with no credits. So I was um, taking 22 credit semesters, uh, credits per semester. As I was going to say, pretty dang productive. Uh, and, I, and <laughs> we had passed a million dollars, you know, in the dorm room. Um, it was just me, but and my girlfriend was helping me out. And, um, and she, would, she was studying at accounting. So when she would learn something in her classes, she'd bring it back to the business. You know, she was um, working with Deloitte and Goldman Sachs on Wall Street. And she would ask questions to the people that she knew there. I, I would text her and be like, hey, um, what is, you know, how can we take advantage of depreciation on an internet business? And just questions like that. And she would talk to them. And so, you know, here we are. <laughs> and, and I built a team of, of, you know, a couple dozen people by, the, by 20 years old. By the time I finished Arizona State University, um, I graduated summa cum laude, top of the class. You know, I just, I, I always put in my mindset, um, I became addicted to the joy of achievement. And that was my new addiction. It wasn't video games. It wasn't drugs. It wasn't alcohol. It wasn't partying. It was purely the joy of achievement. How could I push myself to that next level, that next level, that next level? And so um, that was it. It was, it was not a race to graduate in two years, even though my business needed me and it did work out. It was really just, can I add five more credits, two more credits, three more credits? And my, my advisor said, as long as your grades stay up, we'll let you, we'll do the overrides and you can keep adding as many credits as you can handle. And I said, okay, I know this, I know this game already done. And so graduating in, in just under two years, uh, the top of the class fastest in, in ASU history, that was not my goal. It was just to finish uh, college for my family and for myself. Um, and I believe that you go to college to learn how to learn, you, you know, you learn a lot of uh, adjacent skills that are transferable across business, across corporate America. So anyway, to, to, to really answer your question, it was three to four years of, of slow but steady growth. I started to hire people that were outsourced freelancers because I Googled how to hire people if you can't have an office because I was in school all day. I couldn't have an office. So I found Odesk and Freelancer.com <laughs> and Elance and all these other various websites. Um, there's big ones now like Fiverr and others. But um, I, I would post a job on there and people from Pakistan, Philippines, the Philippines, all over the world, the Ukraine, even the U.S. would apply to work for me. And I started to build this team. And now I could take on dozens of websites at once that we were building uh, for a few thousand dollars a pop. And so the revenue started to really stack up. And it really hit the trajectory that was impressive when a client of mine said, you know, if you guys were able to figure out this whole marketing and advertising stuff, um, then I could pay you every month instead of just a one-off website build. And I said, well, that sounds interesting. You'll pay me every month. I like that idea. And he said, yeah, you just have to learn all this stuff. So I did what I always do. I go, I grab every book on the subject, every video I could find on YouTube, everything on Google. I consumed it all. And then I went on freelancer. I tried to, I tried to reach out to experts. I hired them onto the team. And I said, now we're going to open this new division. We're going to go back to all of our old clients and say, we built you a great website. Um, we'll give you a free redesign if it's been more than a year if you sign up for one of our plans to market your business. So that quickly, I quickly realized that the, the uh, hunger for proper online marketing, there were so many, still is, so many um, uh, charlatans and, and, and fakes out there because the barrier to entry is so low that everyone was saying they could do Google AdWords, they could do SEO, and now it's Facebook ads. You know, it changes by name, but it's still the same, same thing. And so I said, if we could do something at a high value, charge less than the market, same, same model, until we get enough clients, then we can start to raise our prices. As we can prove it out, then we could have a massive business. And so along that process, one of, um, one of my mentors, I forget who it was, I don't know if it was a professor, I don't know if it was a friend, but someone told me that um, service businesses are generally hard to sell, they don't get a high multiple. I was like, what do you mean multiple? Is then, you know, when you sell it, blah, blah, blah. So, so, okay. so then I, I yeah, had to go back yeah, and yeah. engineer the business <laughs> to productize our most popular service offerings. So I created a, a transparency tool that essentially, this is the biggest breakthrough right here uh, in the business that allowed me to exit the business and, and become you know, relatively wealthy was I figured out that um, if we could build a free transparency tool where any company could plug in their, their agency, what they're spending, all of that, the reporting, Google Analytics, we could audit for them how well their agency was doing. 
um, and give them a score and recommendations. And then if they wanted to do something about those recommendations, I coded in one click button that said, you know, are you tired of wasting money? Or it was something like that. And if they hit yes, I got an immediate text and email saying, so-and-so wants to speak to you. So I would hop on the phone with them and I would take them through the process and say, look, if we can't outperform your current agency, don't pay us anything, period. Let us work for free. Let us figure all this out for free. So I was making that strong guarantee and they, they had nothing to lose. And so they started to give us a shot. And so naturally, agencies started to get pissed off that we were letting clients audit their work <laughs> because I found out that yep. uh, you know a lot of it's vanity metrics and dance, dance and show. And here I am saying, where's where the ROI, the true ROI? Not impressions, not clicks, not none of that. How many coupons were downloaded? How many coupons were redeemed? And what was their profit based on the spend for that month? We were able to show those numbers. And so, again, the word started to spread. And they said, are you guys using these people? If not fire agency, you got to work with these guys. We started picking up big accounts. Through, um, I had a, a, a woman call me one day that ran a huge PR firm in Chicago. And she's like, Josh, we want to be your friend, not your enemy. Can we private label, you know, white label your services for our clients and build it in house? We have clients like Ford, Nabisco, Kraft. I said, absolutely. So we were, again, taking a piece of the pie, working on huge accounts, and we got up to managing $100 million, over $100 million, through our platform, through the algorithms we build, through our services team, dozens of people working for us, maybe almost 100 that were offshore contractors, pretty much full-time contractors for us, anything from design, development, program, programmatic algorithm uh, uh, programming, and you, know, you name it. So all over the board, so data scientists, all of that. And, um, and I was still programming and I was still selling, but my role shifted to become more of a recruiter, more of a sales, you know, bringing in the big sales and then retaining the big clients so that we weren't losing them. And then I finally had something to sell at that point. And that's when at 20, I was 21, 22, um, when I decided in the next six months, the business would be sold. And the reason why I decided that was because we started to work on side projects because I never wanted to fire any, any of my team members if we lost a big client. Uh, and so I needed a way to make money from, from their help without, um, without just eating the cost. So we would come up with all sorts of businesses. We have a garage door retailer, a garage door parts retailer, totally random. We have a leading teeth whitening company. We have a, a pet apparel brand. Um, and these companies started to become significantly large and, and actually outgrow our main business. And I, and I saw that my team was having more fun working on those projects than they were working through the red tape that our clients uh, uh, provided for us. So I knew that I had to get out, but I couldn't tell anybody. I was uh, working 18 hours a day. I was 310 pounds. I was flying all over the U.S., not because I wanted to, but because I had to, putting out fires. And I was stressed out and feeling burnout, but I knew I had to keep it up for the team and keep it going. But I, I knew there was a way out now that I had productized the service. So that's when I went on the road to to sell out. Well, I was gonna say, can, we, can I can I can I interject for a second because I like I think you're hitting on a ton of really really good points here that I want to I want to peel apart just a little bit because you know first of all you know the fact that you were told by this mentor on what a multiple is and that services are not easy to sell I think is unbelievably amazing because so many people realize too late when they actually want out or they've hit that burnout. Um, so, you know, if we can kind of go back and say, okay, so the fact that you knew what you were doing as you were creating the product and all this, so what were some benchmarks that you had been tracking mentally, whether is it, is it, was it recurring revenue? Was it a certain multiple? Was it a certain dollar amount? What were you chasing to then when you've all of a sudden had that triggering? Okay, now I know I've got there. You know, what, what were some of the parameters that you or your mentors or people that you had seen had um, kind of helped guide you towards? Yeah, you're talking about when I got to a point where it made sense to sell. Well, yeah, because like, you know, like if you realize that, OK, so if my, you know, the, the business before you built out the, the platform, before you started doing the white labeling and all these different things, you know, you were shifting the business model, which a lot of people do. Either they don't do it because it's too hard or they don't know when to do it and they, they're trying to sell it and they find out the hard way that it's not worth any money. So you had shifted and you had done a lot of amazing things. And was there a certain revenue size? Was there a certain number or benchmark or something that you were looking to, I mean, working 18 hours a day and flying all across the US at, uh, at 300 pounds, like you've said, is, 
I mean, you were, you're burned out and you were chasing the, the enjoyment of achievement and which I think could probably be a death cycle for anybody that is, you know, as, as hardworking as you. So how were you, how did you make that judgment yourself on when was it enough? Well, it was, for me, it was, I, I was looking at how many people I need to hire every time we brought on a certain amount of spend that we were managing. So we were managing, you know, uh, millions and millions of dollars of YouTube advertising, Google advertising, search and optimization, all of that. And I, I knew that um, I could draw the line uh, and it was pretty steady. So every, you know, X million of spend we brought on, we needed to hire five people or every new big project, we needed two more people. And so I knew that the, the growth curve was pretty linear in terms of adding more human capital to uh, sustain the growth. And so I felt that just looking at my stress levels and I had shifted to become, I was half, half uh, sales, sales leader and half people manager. And um, that wasn't particularly where my strongest suits were. And I knew that um, in order to get to, you know, a billion dollars in spend management or whatever that huge lofty goal was that I would need to have, you know, maybe a thousand plus employees. And um, I felt like that wasn't where I wanted to take the business, particularly because I had something else that we had built internally. We had a bunch of those sites that uh, we had built internally, whether we were selling garage reports or beauty, uh, skincare online, whatever it was. And a couple of joint ventures with some clients as well that were doing really well. And I, and I just realized that, you know, we could chase the, the vanity metrics of how big is your office? How many employees do you have? What's your top line revenue? But I started, started to realize on my own that profit was what really mattered and impact. And, you know, I just kind of just being in it so much that you kind of, you have to be introspective. If you're working in the business all day, you have to take at least a few minutes a day to just think about, am I just doing this just to do it? Um, kind of like when I was in school, I could have gone all the way to PhD and I probably would have, you know, gone after five PhDs. I'm just that, that mindset. When I walk into something, I go all the way, but I don't take a step back and say, should I even be doing this? And I think a lot of us get, get stuck in that. And so for me, it was seeing that the, the scale of the business and needed a lot more people. That was something that I didn't uh, particularly enjoy. I didn't foresee having thousands of employees and overseeing that. That wasn't something at the moment that really excited me. And plus, I kind of had a little bit of shiny object syndrome, but it was, it was, uh, it was rectified. It was valid because the side projects were becoming million dollar side projects. They were very profitable and they required just one or two part-time people to run them. I knew I could scale that a lot more efficiently with, with my skill set, my team, and the fact that we've never raised outside funding, no debt, no credit cards, nothing. I knew that in order for us to keep growing that, um, I would like to take an exit and take that money and invest it into those quote unquote side projects. So that, it, that was kind it. of the whole thing. So yeah. how did you, no, no, I think that's, that's very insightful. And like, and I'm curious, like, because you're so damn motivated and you're so able to accomplish what you put your mind to at what, where were you? Were you flying around? Were you like, where did you decide this is not what I want to be doing? Like when you said, okay, you want to take, cause I think the biggest challenge and it's come up on the show before is you have to take some time to take a pause, take a deep breath and go, am I running the right direction? Should I be doing this? Where were you when you did that? And how did you determine that you were not doing what you should be doing? I'll tell you exactly where I was. So I was, I was, you know, I was making good money. We're, we're profitable enough that I could um, pay myself a good enough salary. And, and so I was, I was masking, masking a lot of things with just looking at the money I was making. I was driving supercars and my dream cars that, I went from driving the city bus or riding in the city bus to, you know, driving, you know, my dream cars. And, but I was, you know, over a hundred pounds overweight. I was rolling out of the cars. My, my back hurt, my eyes hurt, my neck hurt. I just, I, and I was sitting in the parking lot. Uh, it was a target, target parking lot. And, um, I, and I was, it was like 10 or 11 PM at night. And I was with my girlfriend, Brenda and, we had, we were just sitting there and I, and I just kind of said to her, I was like, I, I feel that I want to take this company a different direction where we have a lot more potential and in order to do that, just like a snake sheds its skin, you have to be willing to, to sell something you've built and give it to someone who can take it to the next level so that you can do something else. And I feel like I'm at that point, but I can't tell anybody in the business because they're going to feel like their job security is at risk. They're going to feel worried. So it may take six months. It may take a year. I don't know how long it's going to take, 
but I'm going to try to sell this business without no one knowing, uh, without anyone knowing, so that no one is shocked. But for me, it was that moment of just, I, I felt I was tired. I'd worked an 18-hour day. You know, I would work from at 7 or 8 a.m. to around 10 p.m., come home, eat really fast, and then get on the computer again and be putting out fires and all that stuff, working for maybe one or two, and then up again at seven. It was literally like that for years. And I just, I felt That's sick. <laughs> I had just gotten my report back from the doctor. I was pre-diabetic. Half my family has diabetes. And uh, I felt like I was, I felt like I was dying. I mean, really in that moment when I was sitting in the Target parking lot, I was like, I, I, what is this all for? Like I have the, I have the cars, I have the money, I have the lifestyle, I have the title. I'm CEO. I've got a big class A plus office. You know, I've got all this stuff, you know? And so what is it for? Like, what, what am I actually doing here? What do I want to spend the rest of my life doing this? And for me, it was like, I don't think so. I think that a lot of, a lot of companies are really interested in what we've built. And I think if they had their hands on it, maybe they could grow it. Um, and I could take that money and I could put it into something that makes me and my team much more happy. And that was an, I just, I decided at that moment, it was boiling up to then. And I, and I said, right then and there, it was almost midnight when we finished talking. And my girlfriend, Brenda was, on board. She's like, I, I see how much you work. I see that you're not completely fulfilled. And I can see that the team is more excited working on projects that we own hundred percent of and that we have full control over versus working for the clients. Um, you know, uh, she agreed. And so that was all I needed that I kind of already made my decision at that point, but, um, I vented out and so I'm, I, you know, I'm sure a lot of us entrepreneurs vent to our loved ones and, and kind of getting that <laughs> even just a yeah. nod or just like, like, I'm, you know, babe, am I completely crazy or just a little crazy? And she was like, no, no. She was, <laughs> right. She's like, I'm with you. I'm with you. I, I think you're right. I, you know, I trust you. She, she gave me her trust as well to say, I trust you. You know, she left Goldman Sachs and Deloitte to come work for me. And, uh, you know, and so it's, that was all I needed. And, and that next day, I started reading every article I could online, every book I could read online on exiting your business, how to how to strategically talk to, to potential acquirers and all of that. And that became my next project in addition to running the business. So now I was working, you know, 20 hours a day. I mean, it was, it was even more because, but I knew that the, the light at the end of the tunnel was coming. So I was willing to put in that extra work, push a little bit harder. And uh, because I knew that was coming and, and, and within six months, the business was, was sold off and I was on my, on so my let's, way. Uh, yep. let's- well, and I want to dive into that process because I'm very intrigued because, you know, I went through that same thing with our business in 2014, but there was not a lot of resources out there, which is, you know, why I do what I do for a living. And, you know, I didn't even know where to Google things because, you know, this is back, you know, in 2013. And again, because it's a secretive thing that you got to keep your employees, you know, unfortunately, you know, unaware of. So kind of walk, walk us through that journey where, you know, what were some of the epiphanies that you had? What were some of the, the main insights? And, you know, I mean, yeah, with all the information you digested, you obviously gravitated towards certain things. And can you kind of maybe give us a little bit of insight on that, that six-month journey? Yeah, I w- um, we were talking about the, the process of actually researching and figuring out how well, to sell like, the company. Yeah, like, so like, you know, the, the things that I've done or we talk, we talk about on the podcast or the blogs that I write now or all this other stuff, it's like, okay, what's the company worth and why? What are my exit options? You know, how do I tell the employees? What are the tax strategies? There's so many moving variables mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that people don't necessarily know how to put together. So what areas did you cover? What did you, you know, what are some really good nuggets that you want to make sure other people know that you might not have known? And I mean, just that kind of that whole process. Well, I'll share a story. So um, I, a bit tragic, I guess, and financially tragic. But when I started to make money, um, you know, I didn't know how to invest it. I didn't know, like, should I just save it in my savings account? Do I put it under my mattress? Do I put it back all back in the business? I had no clue on what to do there. And every one I asked had a different opinion. And so one day when I was at, um, I think it was Bank of America, and, you know, they see this young, this young guy come in with high balances on the accounts and multiple business accounts. They're like, oh, you need to talk to our Merrill Lynch advisor. And you know, and then you need to talk to our other financial advisor. And so they come out dressed in suits and all that. They're <laughs> freshly, min- freshly minted from university with their uh, finance or accounting degree. And, um, uh, and so they start talking about stocks and bonds and mutual funds and showing me portfolios and all of that. And, 
And, you know, I'm like, okay. And I, you know, I must've been half asleep and just said, okay, sure. I can add to my money. And, and so I started to have outside people manage my money um, because I thought that I'm really good at making it. I'm not good at state. I mean, I'm okay at saving it, but I'm not good at investing it. So I need to get people who are good at that and pay them to do that. That for me personally was the worst decision uh, I made financially at the time um, because, you know, you get someone fresh out of university who has never made much money themselves, let alone it's not their money. And they're, you know, a lot of times the way it's set up is that they're put against the client because the more they're trading in and out, the more commissions they're taking. And so, you know, I had to figure out that the, the hard way. Some of my mentors have lost eight, 10, $15 million. Um, so I was a very small fraction of that. So I'm grateful in that respect. But I, after that point, I made it my life mission that I will make the money, I will save the money, and I will learn how to invest the money until I get to the point where if there's a billion dollars in my bank account, I need a family office and all of that, I'll do it. Or if I make enough money where I can play with the hedge funds and do those things, okay, maybe. Um, and I'll rely on advice, consultants, advisors, et cetera, but no one will actually be touching my money other than the one who made it, which is me. And so that was a big experience for me. So going from that, I well, learned that if I was going- did you read the yeah, Tony sure. Robbins? Have you have you read the Tony Robbins book? Yep, and I'm reading Ray Dalio's uh, principles right now. Oh, at the moment. Ray Dalio's principles book, Josh is is it's amazing. <laughs> so oh like, no, so, it's good. Yeah, yeah, that guy is a machine. But like, no, I I think your experience. A lot of people have that the hard way. I mean, it, it's uh, it's it's a uh, it's a uh, cloudy. Well, it, it, I mean, it's cloudy with all advisors, and I don't know what your experience is with other advisors that you would hired. So my business partner actually right now is he he's a fiduciary investment management. So the, he was like kind of my, I found him as my like confidant throughout our process. But even like the attorneys, the investment bankers, the commercial real estate, bankers, everybody was kind of looking at us as like a, as a pot of money they could make money off of. And you're just kind of, you know, dodging people every different direction. Was there other advisors that you used throughout the process? And then I, how did you end up figuring out who was going to lead the transaction and actually find the person that you were going to sell to? Well, I was, uh, one of my mentors told me, um, a really good friend of mine, Rick West, um, he's in, he's in the real estate business. And he, he told me once a fool, a fool and his gold are soon invited everywhere. Um, I realized that, you know, not coming from money, not coming from any, um, you know, high financial means whatsoever. Um, I, it was new to me. So I'm new money. I'm learning, you know, how to spend it, how to, you know, uh, how to spend it's easy. I mean, consumerism was, runs rampant. So spending it's easy, but, um, you know, for me, I started to feel that same, same thing that he mentioned to me. I felt, kind of felt like a fool. I was getting invited everywhere. Everybody wanted to manage my money. Oh, I've heard of this investment thing. I've heard of this. And so, it, you know, you, as a marketer, you learn, you learn, you should learn sales. Everybody should learn sales because you learn what's in it for me. Um, people are generally acting on selfish principle and that's, that's natural. That's primal. Um, it's a primal trait. That's not to say that everybody's selfish and greedy and mean. It just means that people are generally uh, acting out of self-interest and that's okay because a lot of times what you're looking for is does your self-interest align with my self-interest? If so, then boom, let's do it. But if your self-interest doesn't align with mine, that's where we have a problem. And so for me, I, I was reading about Warren Buffett because like every entrepreneur that knows about Warren Buffett has read something about it. I was reading about how Berkshire Hathaway, they don't do a lot of paperwork. They don't do a lot of uh, due diligence even on some of the deals they do. And I'm talking hundreds of millions to billions of dollars. Unless it's over like five or $10 billion, then they'll really bring in all the lawyers. And I'm like, well, if they can do that, why couldn't I broker my own sale? Why couldn't I figure out how to do that myself? And so I thought about it and I said, let me figure out how to do it. And let me just give it a shot. Worst case scenario, I can get some help. So I went, um, I went looking for other advisors that um, do mergers and acquisitions. I asked around and just had coffee with them, paid them for their time uh, and got all their different opinions. I think I maybe spent a couple thousand or maybe a few thousand bucks just talking to them, consulting, advising. And then I didn't hire any one of them to actually do the acquisition or do the actual purchase or any of that, uh, the sale. I just used their ideas and sometimes they gave me good people to connect with um, and I paid them for their time. And so just by doing that, what I ended up doing is I went back to our white label 
um, partners who were who had a lot of cash in the bank, very established PR companies, media companies, traditional advertising, and said, well, you know, would it make sense uh, if, if, if we were ever a part of your portfolio or we ever a part of what you do? Um, and I started to, and I, what I told them is I said, I, I'm thinking of raising money to take our uh, algorithms and our platform mainstream, um, which means that we won't be able to do the white label stuff anymore. Uh, so so letting them know that, that, you know, it's coming to an end. I'm going to raise money. We're really going to take this up. Uh, we have a few people really interested in potentially strategically investing. Some of them are your competitors. Um, you know, I figure I'd come to you see what you think. And that's when all of a sudden, you know, they started to say, well, wait a second. If we get access to this tool, we could shut it down for everybody else. And we'll be the most transparent <laughs> agency of them yeah. all. And so yeah. I started to sell them on that idea. And, uh, and it, it worked um, because all of a sudden they were like, well, have you ever thought of just selling the whole thing? Or would you ever rebuild something like that for us? I was like, no, we wouldn't rebuild it. We've already, it's, it's so good how it's built. Well, I mean, I would consider maybe, you know, licensing it. I don't know. And, you know, so just going back and forth, it's really just following up, talking to people. If their self-interest aligns with yours, then it's perfect. And so I ended up selling a couple of parts of the business separately because um, if I sold it all together, the fact that it was services based would have really hurt me. But the fact that I could pull it apart and kind of spin it, spin it on the tech angle, the algorithms, the uh, audit tools, and all that, and then the services just being a sprinkle on top, I was able to get a higher multiple. And that was just common sense. I was just like, "How much does software company sell for?" Oh, okay, five times more than they sell service services company sell for. Okay, so if I can get people to to understand that I'm more on this side than this side. I'll be able to get prices, whatever people, whatever they see the value in. So I'm going to create the value up front. I'm going to pump it up and back it up legitimately because ultimately if they buy the company and it fails, I'm in trouble. And so I led with a high earnout, And I said, I don't care. You can, you can earn me out over 10 years. This stuff is not going anywhere. All of that. Luckily, you know, they, the, the, I ended up getting the majority of that up front. Um, I still had to do a lot of so work would, and all that, but well, go ahead. Go back. Why'd you do that again? Cause most people don't, I mean, earnouts, I, you hear the earnout stories that people get screwed left and right. So that was, that was part of your negotiation tactics or like, why were you doing, was that just pumping up your confidence in your own products and services or kind of what was the, what was the thought process behind that? Well, if you, in the reality, it's a negotiation tactic. It, so if I, if I come up to them and say, look, here's the deal. I said. I can't sell the thing. Let's say I had Widget, Widget Co. And I want to sell Widget Co. for $100 million just because people think in base 10. 1 million, 10 million, 100 million. You ask anyone, what's your dream number? 1 million, 10 million, or 100 million? Um, in reality, <laughs> in reality, I realized that's all arbitrary and, and made up. But anyway, so you go, to, you go with Acme Company and you say, look, I want to sell my Widget for 100 million bucks. And they say, Josh, there's no way we could pay 100 million bucks. I said, of course there is. If I told you there was an earnout over 50 years, you're telling me you wouldn't pay me two million a year for 50 years for the for the something that would make you the two million back in one month. I said that's ridiculous. Um, and if it doesn't make sense to you, we should not even be talking. So then they're like, ah. Oh. So now I staged, I positioned the price at 100 million. I positioned. It's called anchoring, right? Are you familiar exactly. with the, the thinking? Yeah, thinking fast and slow. The like the psychology behind like throwing out numbers like that. <laughs> Yeah, you, so I That's threw out the numbers. So now, dude. <laughs> most most negotiate. I read a really good book by a Harvard uh, professor in negotiation that talked about um, most people don't want to throw out the, the first price. I actually used it to my advantage because I'm able to anchor it when I do that. So I I threw out a hundred. You know, let's just say throw out a hundred million, and they're like, okay, now all I have to do, just like a car salesman, you walk on the lot. What do they ask you? How much are you looking to spend per month? They're not looking. Hey, they're not going to say, hey Ryan, you want to spend one hundred twenty-two thousand dollars on a Jaguar? You're going to be like, no, yeah. they say, how much do you spend? And then you say, ah, oh, 600 a month. Well, I can get you this Maserati for 600 a month. You'll be paying it for 15 years, but you'll be driving a Maserati. <laughs> yeah. So then the next thing you do <laughs> is you get them to, you get them in the car. So the way you do that in business is you get yeah. them to taste it, get them to post a picture on social media of them in the car. Now their friends are like, oh my God, you bought a Maserati, Ryan. Whoa. Now you're obligated to buy it. And so get them to feel it. So what I did is I said, I showed them the numbers. I said, if we cut off all your competitors from using this tool, here's how it would hurt their bottom line. Um, and here's how it would boost yours. And so I started to sell the dream and legitimize it by actualizing a plan for if you were to take over, 
And if you paid a hundred million, here's how fast you could earn the hundred million back. It's soon as three years. And there's your shareholder value. Here's blah, blah, blah. So now they're like, ah, so I'm, I'm explaining to them, I'm educating them, and then give them the keys. So I said, come over to our office, talk to our team. Here's the software, play with it. You want me to turn off one of your competitors for a week, see how crazy they get, and I'll show you the emails? Why not? So then they're like, ah. <laughs> so now they're hooked. They've tasted it. Are you doing this with multiple people or just one? Multiple. Yeah, multiple. Yeah, you, you, you can never, you never want to place all your bets on one, one person buying the company because if I had a dollar for everyone that said, oh, I'd buy it or oh, I'd do it, show me the money. If the money's in my pocket and it's real, then you're a buyer. Otherwise, you're just yanking my chain. So I had two or three that I was talking to all legitimately and getting them all excited. And at any given point, I could say, oh, well, I'm, I'm also talking to so-and-so. So anyway, I, you anchor, you give them the keys, you test, let them test drive it, let them fall in love, sell them on the dream, the vision, tack on to whatever that they mentioned. So if I go and I buy a car and I'm talking about my wife's about to have a kid, I'm going to sell you on the safety, the, the comfort uh, for road trips. I'm going to sell those things versus it's fast. You, you know, all the ladies are going to look at you. You don't care about that because you're a, you're a mom and you're, your wife just had a baby and you mm-hmm. want to have mm-hmm. faith. So that's what I started to sell them on, uh, whatever that was. And you, you just keep following up. So I did everything myself. Um, I, so um, when you were, yeah. cause we, we, we did, we had a similar process in this. We also did the same thing where we didn't tell our employees. Um, we had to bring in a couple key executives, like our CFO and stuff like that, which is pr- fairly common. Um, which there's also a risk if you don't have, you know, you know, if you're not giving them a stay bonus or some sort of chunk, but like, how did you go about bringing in some potential key employees on your team? And then, you know, if you're bringing them and walking them around your office, how did you actually navigate those waters with your, with your staff? Well, you know, I think that, uh, to be an effective leader, you have to instill trust in your team. And I think that they, even if some of them may have uh, been suspicious, uh, they trusted me so much, hopefully. And, and I'm not saying that egotistically. I'm hoping that I did enough to earn their trust. And it showed that I, I brought in a few people mainly to talk to, obviously talk to some of the companies, get them involved. And the way I did it was I told them the truth. I said, these, these guys may or may not want to buy the company. But I figure mm-hmm. if we can get them sold on buying the company, we now have options because we have their ultimate interest. And so now we can say, eh, we're not going to sell it, but we'll sell you 15% of it and see where that goes. Ah, we won't sell it. We'll do this. We have leverage at that point. Worst case scenario, we now have them so bought in as a client that maybe they'll never invest or maybe they'll never buy, but they're so bought in now that they'll, they'll help us. They'll want to stay with us. So that's how I said it. It was very, you know, it wasn't threatening. And I said, um, I also and you want, had, you had, was that? Go ahead. Sorry. No, you had I was a question. Say, so you didn't, you, you weren't worried about like the market or people like, you know, bad talking you, you guys are for sale, you know, you know, painting agencies. I mean, there's just always that horrible, you know, fear of what else everybody's saying. If you're actually selling out. Well, I don't know if you've ever, um, so the way you do it is if you ever walk through the mall, there are kiosks and there's probably a dead sea mineral, one of those companies and with the, or this hair straightener, you name it, especially in this time in the holidays, walk down the mall, talk to a few of them. Uh, I do it all the time. And you'll learn how they sell. And the way that they sell, they say, you know, if you show a little bit of interest, they give you the demo again, same process. Sales has not changed in the thousands of years. So then at the end of it, you start to hesitate. And what they'll do is they'll say, okay, look, um, my, my, my manager's not in today. If he was, I wouldn't be able to do this. Can't tell anybody else, but I can give it to you for $45, everything included. Um, I'll just use my employee discount code. My manager's not here, so I could do that. You know, I'm willing to do that for you. Is, or is that too expensive for you? And so then you ask the closing question. Uh, if it's a guy, the guy's going to be hurt by his ego. If it's a good-looking woman saying, is that too expensive for you? He's like, no, I'll take two. And if it's, if it's a female <laughs> talking to female, she's going to say generally, wow, thank you for working with me on that. Um, could you do it for 40? Or you know, she may negotiate at that point. But at least now you have buy-in and price is no longer an issue. So um, for me, when I talked to the uh, potential acquirers, it was, Look, I'm not talking to anyone like I'm talking to you. If anyone, if the word gets out, um, the price is going to go up. And if the word gets out, honestly, I don't want to sell because I have no reason to. I said, here are my financials. Uh, we're profitable. I'm 20 years old. I have 60 years to run this business. I, I don't care. Uh, I have every. I have my dream cars. I have. Like, I, I don't care whether I sell a company or not. But 
I want to talk about what it looks like if we work together more intimately. That means you invest. Maybe, maybe I'll invest in your agency. And they're like, what? Right? They're like, excuse me, you know, you're going to invest in my own well, I said, why not? <laughs> uh, you know, or maybe we'll give you uh, uh, exclusive licensing to our platform or whatever it is. So, you, you know, time the truth, getting excited about the potential of working together. And again, people will act generally out of selfish interest. So if they feel like if they start spreading the word, it's going to hurt the deal or I'm going to get turned off by it. They're like, Josh doesn't need the money. Josh is crazy. He doesn't care. So I can lose this. And they're the only ones that can help us in this area. And I, and I told him too, I said, the words get out, get down. I find out it's you. We're pulling our contracts from you and you won't have access to our platform because I, I'm hoping that we can have an adult conversation in confidentiality because I'm being open here. And if that's not something you're interested in, then we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be at the table at all. In fact, we shouldn't be working together. And so just being like Ray exactly. Dalio said, like Ray Dalio said, he says radical truthfulness and radical transparency and get everybody on the same page and you can actually get some stuff exactly. done. Exactly. <laughs> and that, I didn't, and I didn't even know that was Ray Dalio's one of which principles. Um, but from reading the book now, I'm like, yes, yes. And yes. So how did you, and I love it. I think he, what you did is absolutely perfect. And how did you, you know, if you, if you had that hundred million dollar benchmark and whatever the numbers actually had, you know, ended up being, did you go off of like a multiple of EBITDA? Did you literally show them the rate of return on a 36 month deal? Um, which then therefore multiples of EBITDA kind of go out the window because it's more of a strategic sale. Um, how did you end up kind of getting to that way that you valued it for the purchase? So, um, you know, I knew as soon as I started talking, uh, EBITDA revenue, all of that, I would meet immediately um, the purely logical side of the brain would turn on and just do a 36 times or three year or five year. I, I, and I, I wanted to avoid that. Um, that's binary thinking and binary thinking is it's very hard to negotiate with a binary thinker. So I knew that I needed that out, out of the table. And so what I did is selling them on the growth, showing them the, the, the market that they're in. They know the market very well getting them to understand the internal value of owning the asset versus their competitors owning the asset. That's intangible. You know, that's, that's something that's hard to quantify, but it is, it is to a point, it is to a point because you can look at, uh, we're, we're always looking at customer success. Uh, that's the number one way to, to drive more business from your existing clients is going back to them and saying, here's what we're doing for you. And, and look how little you're paying us. And, and, uh, and continually going back to them. And eventually, if they're smart enough, they'll continue to raise their contract prices with you and continue to take care of you uh, to a point. So anyway, um, showing the internal value of owning the asset versus the competitors, the growth uh, uh, trajectory, where the market's going, how the code is built and how future-proof it is. So, so those are all things that I don't have to say an exact hard number um, that, that adds to it. And then, and then I right. say, oh, sprinkle, here's the cherry on top. We're profitable. You, you know, we're doing really well. We'll continue to do well. I plan to run this for the next 30 to 40 years, you know, and here's, you know, we'll be in the billions by that point, you know, but I, I don't know, maybe not. I don't know. And just kind of being like that, it's, it's for example, if you, uh, what's the value of owning all four gas stations on, on the corner? You know, that means you're, you're, you're going to get 100% of the customers. Now, obviously, you could do a multiple and see what that looks like on your revenue. But what about the population growth, right? What about the, the, the number of cars? Right. How many people are yep, getting more yep. and more cars. There's, there's five cars a household practically now. It's crazy. So now they're like, wow, I see that. I see that. I see that. So now what you want is you want to, you want to let them imagine the p- potential when they take over their business. The business, they're like, oh my gosh, I could buy for, for 10 million bucks and it'll instantly, I'll instantly make my money back in a year. So now all of a sudden they're selling to you. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So. As you have taken a few of these potential buyers and these partners agencies of yours and then flipped the switch kind of like this, how did you get to the point that, how did you pick the person you picked? Well, it, I knew that I wanted the, I knew that I wanted the, the, the partner took over to be someone that I could uh, work with amicably and uh, someone that I think kind of felt that vision. But at the end of the day, it's their money. It's whatever they want to do with it. They ended up internal life. The, the deal's still completely private. I had to sign all these not, you know, whatever non competes and non disclosures and all of that. I didn't mm-hmm. care. And uh, and I had to stay on for uh, six. Well, I ended up being like nine months of just um, helping them out on a hundred different things. But anyway, 
it was, you know, if you want to buy a, a, a laptop from me and throw it in the lake because you enjoy it, that sucks. You know, that's a laptop I made and I want you to enjoy it. But at the same time, you paid me fair market value for my good. It's now yours. If you want to step on it because you're rich and you just want to be an a-hole to laptop, go ahead. So, you know, I, I removed the motion from there on that level because I don't want to be like, whoever buys me, I want to be able to work with them for 50 years and see my vision. That's all a load of crap. People are going to buy it. They, they see their own vision for your business and they're going to do that, whether it's right, wrong, or in between. So... Was that tough for you? You know, like, especially the staying on, like, you know, a lot of, a lot of owners that I work with, there's a lot of identity wrapped up into this baby they've created. And it's some about like 80% of deals fall apart in due diligence because there's so much emotion wrapped up and that people become illogical. And, you know, was it tough to look at your business as an asset or, you know, did it was through the process, did you learn that and how did you how did you actually kind of remove the emotion from that? Well, I think um, one thing that certainly helped, and I won't I won't deny, but, you know, is that I had other things going on that were growing just as faster, faster. So I had that grass is greener on the other side syndrome, which I'm sure a lot of mm-hmm. entrepreneurs get and, and get again and again. It's a recurring thing, but that helped me realize that this is not it. Like, like I didn't think when I sell this company, I'll never be an entrepreneur again. I also realized I'm a serial entrepreneur yeah. that I can do this over and over and over again. And I actually enjoy that process. Um, and I was out, I was overstaying my visa for my own business. I, I, I was, I was not, not that I wasn't capable. I surely could have become capable and I'm much more capable now at running organizations in, in a much more efficient way. But I, when you're 20, 21 years old, um, you just finished college. You just, you've been working 18 hours a day for seven years straight. You know, you get to a point where you're just like, this is something I've built. It's just like you paint a painting. You paint a painting. The value is based on, you know, Picasso $60 million. Why? Because someone wants to pay $60 million for it. That's why. You know, and so I thought about it. I said, this is my Picasso painting. Picasso didn't just have one painting. He had lots of art. And what if he had just done one painting and held on to that thing his whole life and just said, no, I'm not going to sell it to 60 million. You know, people want to pay $6 for it. Then he's going to be depressed, miserable. He's not going to create anymore. He'll lose that imagination and creativity. He'll feel like he's not worth anything. No, whatever. Who knows? But for me, I kind of realized all that. Mm-hmm. It, uh, it was like an avalanche in my head where I said, look, look, this is something that clearly has value. It's growing. People like it. I, I've saved my visa. I need to get someone else to run this. Um, otherwise, it will die just from neglect. And so it's like, that's when I realized at that point where I was like, it is an asset and I need to get fair market value for it. So I can at least feel good about letting it go, but I can't just wrap all my emotions into it. <laughs> I mean, very, very, very well said, Josh. I really mean that. And so as you went through that process and you stayed for the nine months and you transitioned out, you've got this port- portfolio process and you're, you know, if you've, re- you've retaken yourself out of this and you've looked at it and you've got these side projects that you're now focusing on and You've built a very, very successful portfolio of businesses as well at this point. What have you done differently this time around versus what you did the, the first time and how you've, based on what you've learned? I learned that uh, a true business is one that you can throw money at and it will grow uh, uh, accordingly. So if you invest more money, you're going to get more money back. Um, that sounds super elementary, but so businesses, aren't like that. Um, I, I learned that I like the idea of a, of a business that can scale without being 100% dependent on adding humans to the business. Um, even though there are plenty of billion-dollar businesses that, uh, that prove that model out, for me personally, being an entrepreneur means you get to create a business to your design. And I, I became okay with that. I said, you know what? I, I want to run something that's a little bit more digital. I want to run something that can impact millions of lives, but that I can work from my pajamas at home and have still have a huge team, but they can work in their pajamas from home. And we can still have an office, but not everybody has to be there all the time. Just pretty much flipping it on its head and saying, you know, uh, forget what the media talks about. Forget what, you know, Inc. Magazine's always talking about, so-and-so raising all this money and say, uh, profit, cash is king, profit's king. Um, if I don't have to raise money, then, uh, you know, maybe that's a better thing for me. So something that's not capital intensive, like 
you know, going out and buying buildings. I would need to raise money for that. So digital, scalable, a large market. I love competition because competition uh, trains the marketplace so that they're ready to buy my products when they come out. So I like heavily, heavily competitive uh, um, industries. Um, I like market growth, but I prefer uh, market size over market growth. So if it's a huge market already, like garage doors, it's not necessarily growing really fast, but it's a huge market. And I could be a little hair, a little pimple in the business and drive a billion in sales and no one would notice me. So that to me is, you know, things that I'm looking at. And I just look, I look back in retrospect and said, you know, working 18 hours a day in an office um, is not something that I thrive off of. My mental state of, of flow and deep thinking is generally in my home office or in my home library. Um, sometimes at the office, um, oftentimes on planes, like some people would say. So I wanted to find those pockets of flow and build a schedule where I could really deep, deep think. And a lot of the people I looked up to, they read and they think a lot. And I wanted to make, I wanted to spend at least half of my day reading, thinking, and developing my team. And the other half, you know, selling or doing whatever else I needed to do. So I said, okay, what businesses fit, fit that? You know, and so it's, you know, e-commerce, you know, um, you know, digital products, all that. So I, essentially, I just kind of look back what I, what I didn't like, what didn't work for me, and then looking forward and saying what's possible and kind of combining that and, and making it how I want to. I mean, that's part of the beauty of being an entrepreneur. You can do whatever you want to do. I mean, touche, my friend. <laughs> yeah, very, very, very seriously, very well said. If there's one thing, Josh, that you want to leave our listeners with or one thing you want to reiterate based on all the amazing wisdom you've uh, given us, what do you think it would be? Well, I would say um, I, a couple of things. The, the best time to sell is when something's growing faster, genuinely growing faster and better than ever before. That's if you want to exit. It's, it's, it's okay to exit a business. Um, you, you know, you, there, there will be something afterward. It's very hard for entrepreneurs to ever truly retire. Um, my mentor's somewhere in their 80s, and they're still running uh, publicly traded companies and large private companies. Um, they just, they, they love it. Um, so, you know, thinking of all that and then um, realizing that uh, one thing I, one thing I learned quickly from my mentors um, who are worth many, many more times than I am uh, financially, that they spend most of their day hiking, working out, hanging out with their grandkids, reading, playing dominoes and chess and, you know, doing these things that are all free. And so um, freedom of time is much more wealthy than freedom, uh, than a financial, you know, surplus of cash in the bank account. It's, 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 it's what you design your life to be like. So if selling your business is going to give you a key to a life that you're going to enjoy more, then do it. Uh, or if it's going to give you capital for something else that you truly think and is proven to be faster growing, then do it. Or if you're driving yourself completely insane and there's no one else that can help you and you feel really trapped, First, try to talk to someone, see if selling is the best option, but go out there and, and, and remember val- price is the value that someone's willing to pay. It's, it, you can look at multiples, it's a lot of, yes, it always comes down to something like that, but try to lead with um, getting in their, in their shoes and selling it as they would want to see it so that they, the multiple becomes arbitrary. You know, what multiple? Who cares? But what matters is what it's going to do to your business. And right, so anyway, right. just uh, right. break the rules a little bit. You know, these are everybody follows a certain type of a type of way. And I always say, why? You know, if I want to graduate in two years, let me graduate in two years. If I want to do what I want to do, let me do what I'm going to do. If, if I can work for it, uh, and, and you're willing to work for it, you're willing to, to stick it out, then build the life that you want, and and, and take no regrets. Because you know, the, my next goal is to run a, a hundred plus million dollars a year in revenue, still working in my pajamas, uh, and we're on track to do that. So. You know, if I could do that rolling out of bed at 24 years old, you know, and, and less than 10 years ago, I was dry, uh, riding the city bus and couldn't scrap together the money to, to pay for internet, you know, only in America can this happen. And so stop making excuses, start taking action and, and make the life that you want to live. Josh, I could talk to you for hours, man. I, I, I love it. And I think, you know, for someone, you know, at your age, you have more wisdom than I think a lot of, a lot of people would wish to have in a lifetime. So, man, I, I can't appreciate it. All right. I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. I, I, what is the best way for listeners to get in touch with you if they want to hear more? Yeah. Well, you can put the, uh, Batman signal out. Um, that usually brings me, <laughs> brings me right in. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I guess, you know, 
you Google my last name, I'm, I'm one of two people in the entire United States with that last name. So that usually pulls up my social media and, you know, I'm, I'm on Quora. Quora is a good place uh, to find me on. Um, and, and, uh, you know, I have a, I have a blog that I haven't updated in three or four years, but there's stuff on there. And then I'm, I'm, I'm doing things like this podcast and all that. So, you know, I guess there's no concrete one way to follow me. Social media is probably the best from Quora, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Well, perfect. And we'll put those in the show notes. Josh, I appreciate you coming on the show. Awesome. Thanks, Ryan. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the episode with Josh. I hope you enjoyed it. So I had so many takeaways from Josh and his amazing wisdom and experience that it's going to be tough to narrow it down to a three. But if I had to pick three, here they are. The first one is that really knowing the value of your business gives you so much control Josh was able to walk away and negotiate with his partners the way he was because he understood the value that it brought to him for the cash flow, but he really understood the strategic value that it provided the various potential buyers that he was bringing to the table. And the second amazing piece of wisdom that Josh rattled off in the middle of all the other ones was how to find people that align their self motives with yours. I think there's so many people that get burned by advisors or consultants or professionals, and we become very cynical. I know that happened with me in my situation. When you don't realize exactly what's driving the behavior and his quote about how a fool and their gold is invited everywhere, you have to take ownership over understanding your situation and what it is that you need so that way you can then delegate. Owning it just like you would your health is the exact way to take control over your exit. And the third one is understanding yourself and what makes you happy. Josh's ability to articulate how he had the ability to zoom out of his life, say, okay, what do I want and why should I be doing this? And the fact that he was observant of him being burnt out and then taking the necessary steps to get out of that situation and really identifying what is happiness. Is it time and freedom to jog, to hike, to play with your kids, to play with your grandkids, to spend time with your spouse? And understanding that if achievement is what drives you and that's what makes you happy, being able to put yourself in a situation that it balances all these different things. So really understanding who you are and what you want and why is extremely important. So if you stuck in till the end here, I appreciate it. I hope this brought you value. And if it did, go to iTunes and rate the podcast. And you can also check it out on the show notes and there'll be a link there too. So until next week, have a good one.